Okay. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about the church, talking about churchology. And so um, you've got your notes there, hopefully, and uh, we'll uh, dive into that here in, in just a moment. Um, I'm just curious. I just want to just show of hands. I'm just kind of curious what our backgrounds are. How many of you, ever since you were a kid, you've been a part of a Baptist church? Okay. How many of you, ever since you were a kid, you were a part of some church? Maybe not a Baptist Baptist church, okay? Um, what about um, just at some point in your life, whenever you got into church, um, you were a part of something besides a Baptist church? Any of you guys? So, like, it's whether you started when you were a kid or started when you were older, uh, Catholic church, Methodist church, Pentecostal, some of you guys were from those different backgrounds? Okay, all right. So we've got some varied experiences um, in our room. And so this is probably one of the one of the studies that will um, reveal different a lot of the different things that kind of split us up as as churches as church as the there's a worldwide church this is kind of the the area where a lot of the division takes place is in how we see church how we see what the church is supposed to be how it's comprised of its members um, and things like that so. Uh, we'll we'll actually look at the extent of, of what that looks like here in just a moment. Um, so this is a, a pretty interesting uh, interesting topic. But as we uh, as we jump in, I just want to start out by defining uh, what the church is. Okay, and so uh, the word church, as we have it in the scriptures, uh, comes from the New Testament word ecclesia um, or ecclesia. They they say it different ways. Um, uh, comes from the New Testament Greek word ecclesia, um, and ecclesia technically means the called out ones. Um, so uh, what uh, this is usually referred to in the Greco-Roman culture, it referred to a called assembly. Um, so for example, in Texas, our state representatives are only supposed to normally convene every two years. Um, you know, they, they go and have their, have their session. But almost every year, at least once or twice, the governor will call a special session. And when he calls that, he assembles all the state representatives and senators together. They have to come to Austin for a special session to, you know, talk about something. Um, and so that, that idea of somebody in leadership calling a group of people to assemble together is kind of the underlying uh, meaning of this word, Ecclesia in the Greco-Roman culture. So whenever they would call an assembly of a government body or a community group or something like that, they would call the Ecclesia together. Um, so that was kind of how it was used in popular language, although very rarely is it actually referred to in that way in the New Testament on a secular level. If you remember, um, whenever uh, Paul is preaching uh, in, 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 the, in the book of Acts, he's preaching, he goes into Ephesus, and the Ephesian idol makers cause up a big stir and they start this riot where they're all going around saying great is you know uh, uh the artemis great is artemis the goddess of, of ephesus or whatever her name was and they start they just start making this riot and riot and it grows and it grows and it grows well there's a basically a city clerk that stands up and addresses the ecclesia that assembly is what the word there is, is used and says guys if we don't stop this they're going to come in they're going to kill us all because we're riding for no reason. And so that's one of the few places where Ecclesia in the New Testament is actually refers to a secular assembly. But almost all of the other references um, refer to uh, the church. Uh, in fact, it's used 114 times, and 109 of those refer to the local or the universal church. 
And so in, um, uh, so like I, I was just saying in New Testament Roman times, it often referred to an assembly of specific people called together for some reason, such as gov government appointees. So uh, that's how it was basically used in the, in that Greco-Roman time. Um, in the Old Testament, it is used to translate the Old Testament word kahal, uh, the Hebrew word kahal, which refers to those who have heard the call to assemble and have responded. And so in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, there's two different words that are generally used for assembly. Uh, one is kahal, and the other is ada. And so that's just your next line there. Another word for assembly in the Old Testament is ada, refers to those who are part of a national assembly by birth. And this word is translated in Greek as synagogue uh, or synagogue. Uh, and so, uh, so basically, there were two Old Testament words for assembly. One referred to the entire nation of Israel. It was called the, assemb you know, the assembly of Israel. And this was the word Ada. And you were born into this assembly by the nature of being born a, in the family of Israel, being born to an Israelite family. So a uh, boy is born. Eight days later, he is circumcised. He has been uh, ushered into the assembly of Israel, the gathered community of Israel. This is the word that's used, that's the word that is translated synagogue in the New Testament, in the Septuagint. But there's another word that, respond, that refers to an assembly that is called and then responds. And so, like, for example, all the men of Israel were supposed to go to uh, Jerusalem, to the, to the temple, to worship various points throughout the year. And that group was called an assembly, and they were supposed to assemble in, um, in Jerusalem for, those worship, for that worship and for those ceremonies and stuff like that. That word is kahal. It's the ones who have heard a call and have responded. And this is the word that matches up with the Greek word ecclesia. So uh, the church could be defined as those who have heard the call and have responded and have assembled together. And so the church is not just something you can be born into or just something that you can, by nature of who you are or what family you were born into or what region of the country or the world that you live in, just be born into. The church really is something to where you have heard a call. So, something has called your heart, and you have responded, and he, you have joined with an assembly or a gathering of people. And so that's what the that's kind of what the nuances of the Greek word um, show us. This ecclesia is supposed to be, and the church is referred to in uh, two different ways in the New Testament: the local church and um, the whole church. So the local church. And the whole church, or sometimes we call it the universal church. So let's talk about the local church. Uh, the local church is a body of believers who have covenanted together to be a gathered local body of believers who fulfill the ordinances and the purposes of the church. So let me just kind of break down that definition. So local church is a body of believers who have covenanted together to be a gathered local body of believers. So a local church, by you know, the word kind of defines what it is, it's a local group. Um, just because I'm a Christian, I'm not a member of Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano. It's a humongous church, but I'm not a member of that church. Um, Saddleback, you know, Community Church, uh, Rick Warren's Church in California, massive, massive church with 30,000, 40,000 members. It's a huge church, but just because I'm a Christian, I'm not a member of that church. I'm a member of a local church because I have to be a part of something that I can actually go to, <laughs> right? And so uh, we are a local body of believers that are gathered together, and a church is a, supposed to be a gathering that fulfills the ordinances and the purposes of the church. And this is an important definition. Um, if a group of kids uh, get together at their lunch table who are all Christians, and they just decide we're going to be a church, 
Can they be a church that meets together once a week at their lunch table? What could they or could they not? If they have all like purposes, why can't they be a church? Okay. Could, well, they would have to have they would have to have leadership, like ordained leadership. They would have to have be able to go through the ordinances, you know, submit, uh, give out baptism, give out the Lord's Supper. They would have to be covenanted together as, as an established church. And there are certain things that the New Testament defines as, as a church. These things are what make up a church. And they can be part of a church or they can be exp an expression of a local church in that context, which is what we want them to be, right? We want them to be a little pocket of Green Acre South in White House High School or in uh, you know, Bullard High School or something like that. We want to be the church extended and out into the community, but they themselves can't be a church. And it's not because of their ages. Um, just a gathering of Christians that all go to the Green Acres who meet together at Brookshire's Warehouse on their lunch break, that itself can't comprise a church unless they organize, elect leaders, and all that kind of stuff. And those are there's, there's biblical warrant for those those definitions. All right. So a local church is a body of believers who have come in together uh, who fulfill the ordinances and purposes of the church. And we'll talk more about that here in a moment. Local churches have historically organized primarily in one of three ways. And so this is where we get into the things that divide us. And unfortunately, these things divide us because in the New Testament, in the early church, you didn't have all these divisions. Even Paul addressed it at one point. He said, hey, some of you say I follow Apollos. Some of you say I follow Paul. Some of you say I follow Jesus. He said, look, Apollos and I are nothing. You know, we are just men. Don't follow us. Don't be aligned to us. Be connected to Jesus. That's what matters. But today, um, you know, we have uh, so many denominations. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. I'll, get, I'll let you guess to see how many we have. But we all, we fracture ourselves up among all these different differences and subtle differences, major differences. But historically, there have been three primary ways that churches organize. The first one is Episcopal churches. Okay, so y'all probably heard of a an Episcopal Church, you know, First Episcopal Church, or uh, St. Mary's Episcopal Church, or, you know, St. John Episcopal Church, something like that. Um, Episcopal churches are uh, very close, are closely formed like a Catholic Church, but they are, uh, they do have some, uh, they are not necessarily a Catholic Church, but a, the Catholic Church does fall in this group. So Episcopal churches sees two levels of ordained church leadership local church elders, which are also called priests, and ruling bishops, which are outside the church and have governance over a large area. The church hierarchy makes all the decisions regarding appointments and leadership and ordaining, and the church leaders ex exercise absolute rule over the church. Um, so uh, this is where you've got a local priest, and he is given to the church. He's not selected by the church. He's appointed to that church to go there. So uh, you know, if a church, if I'm a Episcopal priest and I go through the seminary at an Episcopal seminary, when I graduate from that seminary, well, they may say, well, up there in South Dakota where it's good and warm, we're going to send you up there and you're going to be the priest for, you know, whatever Episcopal church there in South Dakota. Pack your bags, bring your ski clothes, leave your swimsuit at home. You know, they get to just, they get to send you where they want you or need you to be. And so the church is what makes all the decisions. So the the bishops make all the decisions for their area churches, and then the upper bishops above them make the decisions that they have to carry out. And so it's a hierarchy where the local church does not have authority over its own uh, property and uh, what it's going to be doing, what it believes. 
uh, that all comes from the top. And so if the, um, uh, and, the, and then one of the places they get this from is 1 Timothy 5, 17. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Um, and I believe this is a misunderstanding of this scripture, and we'll talk about that later. But um, basically they say that there's two different levels of elders here. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered double honor. And so you've got elders who rule, apparently. And it says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So it shows that there are some elders who rule, and there's some elders who rule and teach. And so an elder who rules and teaches, that's going to be somebody at the local church level. He's ruling his little church, and he's also teaching in that church. But then there's those elders who don't teach. They're just ruling elders or bishops, and they would be the ones who are up above, who just have a governmental top role. I think that's a bad interpretation of that scripture, um, and uh, we'll, we'll look at why here in a little, little while. But in this system, all theological decisions are made by the high church leadership. Teaching schedules are either planned and dictated or highly suggested. So in uh, a lot of these types of churches, the pastor doesn't come up with his own sermon. It's sent out to him uh, each quarter or each year. This is what you're going to preach. Um, here's your message already prepared. And so you, you can see how that would be a little bit of an issue. There's no, there's no contextualizing of the sermon. Uh, the pastor doesn't get to say, well, this is going on in my church. I need to address this in my church. And this is what my church needs to hear right now with, with what we're going through. He's given the message he's supposed to give, and he just either recites it. He could probably tweak it, make it his own a little bit. Um, but for the most part, he doesn't have to pray over it. He doesn't have to struggle with the text himself to try to figure out what the Scripture's saying. It's just handed down to him. Examples of this kind of polity are Roman Catholic churches, Anglican churches, um, Episcopal churches and Methodist churches. Um, Anglican church, uh, that's just another name for the Church of England. In the United States, it's called Anglican. Over in uh, England, it's called the Church of England. They did that because they didn't think the Church of England title would be accepted real well in colonization America. Um, so they changed the name to, um, uh, to Anglican. Uh, but basically, you got Roman Catholic, and if you know the, your history, the Church of England started because the Roman Catholic Pope would not grant the king of England a divorce. And so he just said, well, we're not going to be part of the Roman Catholic Church anymore. I'm going to start my own church. It's the Church of England, and I'm in charge. <laughs> I'm the Pope of the Church of England, and I say I can get a divorce. And so um, that's basically how the Church of England started. They have uh, the head bishop of the Church of England is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and so they function just like a Roman Catholic Church does for the most part, um, but uh, just have a different title. The next group of uh, a form of polity or church government, church organization, is Presbyterian churches. Presbyterians also see a hierarchy of oversight. Um, they call it ecclesial connectionalism. Connectionalism is not a real word, but it's right here, so you can write it down. Um, I think this one that they made up to kind of fit their fit what they're wanting to do. Um, but connectionalism, in which churches are bound together by a connectional government of graded courts, which ensure mutually accountability, uh, mutual accountability, dependency, and submission among them. So basically what that means is uh, they've got a system to where uh, you've got the local church, and the local church chooses its pastor or chooses its elders, um, similar to you know how a Baptist church does that, except that whenever a local church chooses its elders— they are in charge now. They're not submissive to the whole church. We'll talk a little bit about how we're congregationalists. 
I'm submissive to you. Even though you chose me as your pastor and you've given me certain leadership responsibilities, when it comes right down to it, I'm under your authority. I don't have authority over you. You have authority over me as your pastor. Um, but with the Presbyterian church, when you elect those elders, you are giving them complete authority over the church. So they decide that they want to sell the church building and move you somewhere else. They just do it. They don't have to come get a church vote to do that. Um, they just do whatever they think is best for the church. Above them is another level of overseers or bishops, um, which makes like a, a, a regional kind of leadership. Um, they call it a regional presbytery. Um, and then above that, you have synods, which are more nationwide and large regions. And, and all these hierarchies tell the churches what, to, what theology they're going to follow. Um, so back in the 80s or maybe the 70s, I can't remember exactly when it was, the Presbyterian church split because one side, because the, the Presbyterian church was going really liberal. And there was just some conservative Presbyterians that said, no, we're not going that direction. So they split. And now we have a liberal side and a conservative side of Presbyterians. Um, and a lot of Presbyterians, even though they have this form of governor, they're very loose in it, uh, especially the conservative ones. They'll, some of those churches look like a Baptist church, function like a Baptist church. But when it comes right into it, they've just got a little bit of differences that make them uh, Presbyterian. And so there's just this mutual, there's these, just these levels of accountability and dependency and submission. So if there's a issue with the church, the people above them can come in, they can take out leadership. They can change things in the church. They can dictate what happens there on the local level. Um, I kind of got ahead of myself. Here's that next point there. Churches elect elders to rule over them locally. These churches are governed by a system of regional and national courts that decide theological and disciplinary matters. Um, so maybe you've already, I don't know if there was a blank on that one, but hopefully you've already got it. Um, most churches who follow this system are linked to a Presbyterian denomination, although a few free churches are organized in a similar way. So Pretty much almost every one of these kind of churches is going to be so-and-so Presbyterian church. It's going to have that in the title, or it's going to have that in the belief system somewhere, um, even if they don't have it in the title. And then the last group is congregational churches. Um, congregational churches are autonomous church bodies, meaning they are not under the authority of any hierarchical structure of church government. Um, that means that the local church runs the local church. Um, and that's what we are as Baptists. We are congregational churches. Um, so all church authority is vested in the membership of the church. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Green Acres Baptist is unique because we have multiple sites, but most of your Baptist churches, most of your um, uh, uh, any kind of congregational church is going to have one site, and that church governs everything that happens at that location. So it, it determines how they're going to interpret certain things in Scripture. It, they determine how they're going to carry out the mission of the church. They get to determine who their leaders are. They get to determine when to take those leaders out. They get to determine um, when they're going to build a new building or if they're going to sell a building. They get to determine where they're going to send their money for missions. They get to determine everything. It happens right there. And so that's uh, – uh, and that makes up really uh, – if you take out Roman Catholicism uh, – Congregational churches make up the vast majority of churches in all the denominations. Um, I didn't mention up, up above, but in the Presbyterian churches, uh, you see written there on the first point behind that, Acts 15. Acts 15 is where they get their um, foundation for their system of, of groups and governing bodies. And what happened there is the church in Antioch was trying to figure out 
do people who become Christians have to get circumcised or do they have to follow the law? You know, how does this all work? And so the church of Antioch selected some men, sent them down to Jerusalem, and they had the Jerusalem council. And uh, Peter was there, James was there, Paul and Barnabas were there, and they all gathered together and they made a decision, no, if you're saved by grace in Jesus Christ, that's all that it takes. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the law. You're saved by grace. Even though those, those other things might be good ideas to keep, you don't have to do them. And so Presbyterians see that the local church sent a group of representatives to a higher authority in order to make that decision that then went out to the church. But the language of Acts 15 talks about how this was the whole church making that decision. Um, the church of Antioch sent representatives, but the whole church of Jerusalem was gathered to make the decision. So it wasn't just a group of elders that made that decision. But back to uh, congregationals. Um, so all authority is vested in the membership of the church. And we get this from part, uh, part of this from Matthew 18. Um, in Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about how to discipline uh, somebody who is sinning against a brother, but is refusing to repent. And it says, if he refuses to hear them, talking about the, the man who took two with him as witnesses, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And so ultimate authority when it came to removing somebody from membership was vested in the church, was vested in the gathered church body. Um, and so that, that shows that, you know, that, that authority lies there in the gathered church body. Um, congregational churches see only two offices mentioned in the scriptures, uh, elder or pastor um, and deacon. Um, so they don't, we don't believe that we, there are bishops and then local pastors and um, you know, all these different levels of, uh, of authority or, or ordination within the church. You just have your pastors and you have your deacons. Um, and, uh, and Paul talks about this whenever he writes to Titus. Uh, it says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife and faithful with children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion as an overseer of God's household. He must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. And he continues going on. But the reason that I showed you this verse is that if we go back up, he says that the reason I left you in Crete uh, was to set right what was left undone and to appoint elders. And so that, that, el that word elder is presbyteros. That's where we get the word elder from. But then in the very same sentence, when he's talking about the same people, he uses, uh, he uses this word right here, an overseer. That word overseer is bishop, episkopos. And so the word presbyteros and the word episkopos is used interchangeably whenever Paul is writing. So it shows that there's not two different levels of authority here. He's talking about one person. And as you read other scriptures, you see him mix in the word bishop and the word elder and the word teacher and the word shepherd. He, mix, he mixes all of his nouns, all of his descriptors together, which makes it pretty clear that he's talking about one office, one level of leadership, not multiple levels, levels of leadership. And so that's why we believe that we don't have bishops. We don't have bishops and pastors or bishops and elders in the church. We just have elders or pastors or bishops. You know, what are you going to call them? You call them one title and that covers everybody. Um, examples of these include Baptists, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Evangelical Free, Church of Christ, and non-denominational. And um, so there's, there's lots there. 
Um, any questions on any of that stuff before we flip the page over? Clear as mud? <clears throat> All right. So congregational churches, since we are a congregational church, I think we need to know kind of what, what we believe and how we organize. Congregational churches generally organize in one of three ways. <clears throat> the first is democratic congregationalism. Um, in democratic congregationalism, all decisions are made by the collective church body, either by church vote or by church-appointed committees. And so that means that um, we need to buy some new trash cans for the kitchen, so we need to call a church conference tonight after church and vote so that we can go spend $60 and get us some new trash cans. Um, we also need to, you know, so that's, that's pretty small, right? But then we also need to pay the parking lot, which is going to be $6,000. We need to call a church meeting to vote on that, whether we want to do that. We're also going to, you know, hire somebody to be our pastor. And, you know, we've, we've got this guy, we've, he's going to preach for us, and we're going to have a church meeting to vote whether we want to have him do that. So whether it's a little decision or a major decision, the whole church votes. And the, the, practically, that, doesn't, that happens in some churches. Um, and those, those are the churches pastors don't really want to go to. I'm just being honest. I'm thankful we're not that kind of church. <laughs> um, but a lot of times what happens is that church elects, has committees. You know, and the, the youth committee decides how to spend that money. And the women's ministry decides, committee has to decide, you know, so you have committees that kind of handle the small things, whether to buy a trash can. But then the church votes on the big things. And so that's how that typically worked its way out a lot of times. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, kind of gives some uh, credit to this. It says, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So he's talking about a man who was persisting in sin. And Paul was saying, look, I've already, I've already decided this guy needs to be removed from fellowship. So next time you guys are together, assembled together as the whole church, you need to decide together to remove him from your fellowship. So it shows democratic process of removing somebody okay the next uh, one is single elder congregationalism uh, the pastor is the primary leader of the church and is given primary decision-making responsibility by his selection by the church body most decisions go through the pastor and are made by him or delegated by him to others major decisions are made by the church body so this is your typical kind of small small church setup where you have a pastor and he basically just does everything. He makes all the decisions. The trash can, you need a new trash can, he just goes and he buys a new trash can. He didn't talk to anybody about it. He just does it. Um, if, uh, if the walls need to be painted, he goes out and he gets a bid for it and shows the bid to the deacons. They say, all right, brother. And he goes and he gets the walls painted. Um, so the pastor pretty much runs the church. Uh, when it comes to a major decision, spending a whole lot of money, then the church will vote on something like that or calling a new pastor or hiring a music minister. The church will vote on things like that, but by and large, the church runs everything. I mean, the, the pastor runs everything or delegates decisions to people that he chooses. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 is where they find some uh, example of evidence for this. Uh, it says, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and some teachers equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. And the reason they cite this as being uh, an example of this um, is uh, that all of these roles are singular type roles. An apostle was 
something that somebody pretty much did on their own. It was like a unique gift that one person had and carried out. Pro being a prophet was something that one person had that he carried out. Um, being an evangelist is something that one person receives that he carries out his ministry. And so um, they believe that pastors and teachers should follow in that same order of right of uh, it should parallel. And so if you're talking about some uh, a singular gift, singular person gift, a singular person gift, a singular person gift, well, then this must be a singular person gift, too. And so that elder, that single elder pastor um, could rule that could run the church. So that's where they get some evidence for that. And then the final one is plural elder congregationalism. Most decisions go through a group of men who are the elders of the church and are selected as such by the church body. These are a governing body and act without the consent of the church on most matters, but major decisions will still go before the church body. Um, so uh, this would just be like you guys uh, electing an elder board of 10 elders and they make all the big decisions. Uh, or, or most of the decisions, small and big. But then if it comes to selecting a pastor, um, uh, building a new church, hiring a music minister, they're going to bring the recommendation to you, but the whole church is going to vote on it. And so that's kind of how that works. And one of the evidences they get for this, the reason I left you in Crete, Titus 1.5, was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. And so it's plural. It talks about every town appointing multiple elders. So where they had gone through and started a church in all these individual towns, they were selecting multiple elders for every one of those churches. Okay? So I have a question for you. All right? This is feedback time. What is Green Acres? Hmm? Okay. You think we're democratic? Okay. Does anybody differ with that? It's okay. I'm not going to... I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I, mean, I think it's a mixture. Okay, you think it's a mixture? Okay. All right. I actually have a question, though. Okay. Can you go back two slides? Yeah. All right. So could a person who's a teacher eventually become a pastor and a pastor eventually become an evangelist? Because those three seem to feed off of each other by the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Okay. Whereas prophet and apostle, that seems like you have to have some special gifts from God on that one. Mm -hmm. But on the other, those three, by doing it, you become better at it, and seems like you could. It's a. They can kind of like a ladder you climb yeah, up. Yeah, a ladder. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. Now you know, in this context, he's talking about spiritual gifts, uh -huh. but obviously, a pastor who is. A preaching pastor should be getting better at being a teacher and the more he improves in his skill people might call on him to preach revival or something like that i would say that doesn't necessarily mean he has the gift of evangelism or the gift of the evangelist uh but it could be you know we talked about when we talked about spiritology uh, we mentioned how some people believe you have one gift that you're given and you always have it or multiple gifts but whatever you're given you always have it well i personally i believe that you can god may give you a gift for a moment for a purpose, and then he might remove that. Um, and so he could add to or he could take away from, you know, whichever. So does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. Uh, so the question I put before you was, what is Green Acre? You said Democratic. Of the three choices. Of the three choices. Okay. You said maybe a mixture. Okay. What do you think, plural T? Elders. You think we're plural elder? Okay. All right. 
Anybody else want to guess? There's only one other to choose. Anybody want to choose it? Okay. <laughs> well, we are uh, officially, we are democratic. So, Cindy, you get 100 points. Good job. <laughs> um, so, officially, Green Acres is democratic. This is from the uh, church bylaws. It says the government and the management of the affairs of the church are vested in the body of believers who compose it. Persons duly received by the church shall constitute the membership. All internal groups established and empowered by the church shall report to and be accountable only to the church unless otherwise specified by church action. And so by saying that last part, uh, any groups, any committees, any teams that are formed are responsible to the church, not to the pastor, not to the board of elders. They're responsible to the church. Um, and then it says this church is not under the control of any other ecclesiastical body, meaning we don't have hierarchy and stuff like that. So that's from our... Um, that's from our, our documents, okay? But I have a question for you. What if Brother David wants to des- wants, decides he wants to, you know, do, do a pretty big uh, major change in the church? You think he could just do it? You don't think so? Okay. So you don't think he has that kind of power vested in him? enough to convince the congregation mm-hmm. of something that he wanted to do, but okay. he would do it without coming before the church. Right. I think you're right. I think I think Robin kind of hit it right on the head. He has, because of his tenure here and because of his excellent leadership, if he decides he wants to change something in the, you know, the, the way we define how we you know, define something in our beliefs, not change something major, but just change a wording or a nuance or something like that. We'd probably go right along with it. You know, invest, you know, we'd investigate it. We'd probably go along with it. Or if he decides um, he wants to change something structurally up at the Tyler campus, he wants to build this little part over here. It's not a major thing. You know, we'll probably, we'll probably go with that or something like that. But it's because of his this respect we have for him, not because of him actually having that given vested authority. Um, so, so there's maybe some respect given single elder characteristics happen in the church. How do we function as a church plural elder style? Does Green Acres ever function in that way? And you have to think about Green Acres Tyler kind of to answer this question. Okay. All right. So at the Tyler campus, the deacons are an administrative group. They approve the budget. They approve uh, you know, big expenditures and things like that, it has to come before the deacons. And so um, even though they're not a selected elder board, they function as a group of elders in a, lot, in a lot of ways. And so we're kind of a, we are officially democratic, but we kind of function with a little bit of a mixture, kind of like, kind of like Robin said. So, um, so there you have it. We don't know what we are. Just, no, just kidding. I think we do pretty good. Yeah. I think it's a good system. Um, you know, another way that we kind of function uh, democratically slash plural elder is the way that we have multiple staff and those staff oversee their areas. And most of the decisions that happen in those areas happen with that team without input from the church. Expenditures happen without input from the church, but it's because the church has elected them or voted on them as representatives, given them that authority. And so ultimately they're all accountable to the church. If I go out and spend $10,000 on a new hot tub for my office you guys are going to hold me accountable, right? Your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just pay. I just. I just pay hot tub because that's what Jerry Billups always used to say. He's like church hot tub. So I told him. I told him that in the summertime he's got a hot tub. It's right out here. 
you know, it's right out there. So, all right. <laughs> now that'd be a different thing, right? Okay. Well, I've got seven minutes to go over the last half of this page, um, or three minutes. Sorry. So, um, here's what we're gonna do. The Universal Church. I think you could probably read that part there. What are the What are the blanks that I left out there? Is there one? The faith in Jesus Christ from all one or two. One, two, or three. Okay, so the universal church is the full gathering of the church comprised of those who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ from all ages. So that just means that the universal church is not what exists right now. It's what has existed in faith for all time. Ephesians 4, 4, and 6 kind of talks about that. Um, so the universal church doesn't refer to something that is presently existing on earth, but to something that will not fully be realized until God establishes kingdom on earth. So we can't talk about the universal church existing right now on earth because it doesn't. Because there's people who are dead, who are in heaven, who aren't here. There's people who have yet to be born or yet to be saved who are not here. And So the universal church doesn't exist on earth right now, but the worldwide church does. So when referring to all those alive today on earth, it's best to refer to it as the worldwide church. And so, you know, if we're talking about our brothers and sisters in Asia or something like that, they're a member, we're all members of the worldwide church. Um, the marks of the universal church are found in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. When they say Catholic, they don't mean the Catholic church. A lot of times we read the Nicene Creed, and we're like, eh, you know, we don't want any part of that. We're Baptists. What are you talking about? But um, it's not talking about the Catholic church. This is little c Catholic, if you're writing this out somewhere else. Um, but these are those marks expressed in a different way, that we have spiritual unity. The worldwide church has spiritual unity. That we are holy in nature and conduct, meaning that we conduct ourselves in a way that is honoring to God, um, and we believe in a way that is honoring to God. We agree in the gospel proclamation, so we agree in the message of the gospel, that you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, um, and that um, we are governed by Scripture. So all of the people in the worldwide church, um, even though they may live a different way, they're going to say that Scripture is their ultimate authority. Um, so that's that's when we talk about the universal church. Talking about denominations, denominations first appeared in 1054 when the Catholic Church split between the Eastern and Western leadership, creating the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, also known as the Greek Orthodox. Uh, denominationalism has, been, uh, gr has grown since 1517, which is when Martin Luther began separating from the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and uh, they all base their differing viewpoints off of an interpretation from Scripture. Uh, how many... Uh, how many denominations do you think there are in the United States? Let me have four answers. How many do you think? Okay, one answer. 700. I hear 700. I hear so we're talking about recognized? Recognized denominations in the United States. 500. 500. One more answer. 250. 250. All right, you're all wrong. <laughs> there are over 1,000 Christian denominations in the United States. This does not include any different sects or divisions of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, stuff like that. Over 1,000 Christian denominations. How many Baptist denominations do you think there are in the United States? 27. 27? Huh? 100. Okay. There, I'm going to give you the high number, but there's anywhere between 23 and 62 Baptist denominations. And some of these are... Uh, this one kind of encompasses these other three, and, you know, there's different things, but I like to get the big list. You know, it just makes it sound better. Yeah. So there were 62 Baptist-type denominations in the United States. Um, uh, some people say that actual 
real divisions of them is more like 26, 27, like Russell said. Is that how you're getting the thousand? Is like there's 62 different Baptist denominations? Uh, these, no, these were a thousand different named denominations. There are a thousand different named denominations of all different types, the like Presbyterian, Baptists, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's 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 all different kinds of them. I mean, there's some really weird names out there that you can find. Um, the purpose of the church, uh, at its most basic level, the church exists to exalt and glorify God in this world. I was going to read you from this book. You know, we sometimes we disagree on what the purpose of the church is. Um, some people see the church's uh, purpose is to evangelize, edification, worship, and social concern. Another guy says it's to worship, edification, outreach. Another guy finds nine different purposes. Um, talking about, uh, he says those purposes include worship, service, fellowship, discipline, organization, edification, and education, proclamation, and testimony. Um, and then if you've read The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, um, he says that the purposes of the church are worship, ministry, evangelism, fellowship, and discipleship. Um, but I believe that the basic purpose of the church, the ultimate purpose of the church, is to glorify God in this world. That's what we're called here to do. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Um, ultimately, everything that we do should glorify God in this world. Whether we are worshiping, whether we are giving, whether we are fellowshipping, whether we are doing missions, ministry, uh, whether we are disciplining somebody in church, I mean, all those things ultimately are for the glory of God. And so everything that we do should point to him. And the way that we decide to glorify God in our context will determine which one of those emphasis we kind of focus on. So a church may emphasize different methods or ministries to support that main thing of glorifying God. And the last thing we'll kind of run through real quick, church membership and discipline. Membership is, that's not, that's not supposed to say in, supposed to say is. Membership is, I'm oh, sorry, yeah, it, it's right. Membership in a church is a biblical concept. So membership in a church is a biblical concept. Romans 12, 4 through 5 says, Now as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So body language is used all the time to describe the church. And I don't know about you, but my arm does not have an option of being a part of my body. I want it to stay a part of my body. I'm going to get onto it if it decides it wants to go somewhere else, right? And so we as members of one body are supposed to be connected into that body. It's not an option. It's an expectation. And if Hebrews 10 talks about that expectation, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we are expected to gather together as the church. Baptist church members uh, membership requires that you must be a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. There are many denominations that you don't have to profess faith in Jesus Christ in order to be a member of the church. Um, or you could have just been baptized as a baby, and you're good. You're in. Uh, you don't have to have any sort of definite conversion experience at any kind of point. But we believe that you do. And 1 Corinthians 1-2 says to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified or you know being saints in Christ Jesus, called the saints with all those in every place to call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So the church is expected to be made up of people who are being sanctified. You must have been baptized by immersion following your profession of faith in a Baptist church. So if you come to join a Baptist church and say, 
I want to join the church. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Yes, I am. Have you been baptized? Yes, I was baptized when I was three days old or, you know, two, three months old, something like that. Sorry, that doesn't count. It's believer's baptism. And the reason we believe it's something believers are supposed to do is Jesus said in Matthew 28, authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so baptism is supposed to follow salvation. And that's the pattern throughout all of Scripture. Um, and then church discipline is discipline is necessary when a church member persists in sin uh, or refuses to repent. Um, and this is a <laughs> quit pointing at each other. What's wrong with you? Uh, so discipline is, is necessary and it's supposed to function within a church. Uh, this is something that we just don't do well anymore. Uh, not just in Baptist churches, and I'm not saying in Green Acres only. I'm just talking about in churches in general. We just don't do um, we don't do discipline well, and so uh, we need to get to the point where uh, you know we're willing to invest in each other's lives and allow people to have accountability over us uh, in order to function in the way that we should. Um, and then that last slide there, saying uh, guidelines for discipline are outlined in these verses that are listed. So. Uh, you can go look those up at, at some point. Um, anyway, that's a quick run through of, of what it means to be a part of the church and how we get our definitions for the church. Uh, and uh, hopefully that'll be insightful. I'm going to pray for us. And then if you have any questions, be sure and come and talk to me about them. Lord, we're thankful for this evening that you've called us to be a part of this church. And uh, I'm thankful that um, uh, I get to be a part of this great church family. So we just pray that you would help us to be the church you want us to be and you've called us to be. Uh, keep us safe now as we go home on the wet roads. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Justin, yes. Don't you think that last one is probably because if people get disciplined by church members, there's a church on every other corner. I can go to someplace else. Yeah, it is. Okay. So is the coming girl. There's no real investment in each other. Okay. Well, said it. Said it canceled out.